the Rural Health Voice, Episode 77, Community Solutions. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What is a syndemic? Tony Young of the Community Education Group joined me to discuss how rural health issues must be approached on a system-wide level. So welcome, Tony. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for uh, taking the opportunity to learn more about Community Education Group and what we're doing in the Appalachia region. Oh, we're excited to learn more. So tell me, how did you first become interested in issues related to health and health care? Well, I mean, I've been, uh, I was the founder, I am the founder and executive director of Community Education Group. So I was doing this, I was doing primarily HIV work uh, about 30 plus years ago. I hate to admit how long ago that was, uh, but my uh, best friend in the world uh, was diagnosed uh, with uh, AIDS at the time, not HIV. Uh, And so I began doing uh, volunteer work uh, at places like Whitman Walker Health, I was a part of one of the, if not the first AIDS vigil on the mall, uh, doing shows and that sort of thing. And, you know, one of the things that happened is that when my friend got sick, he and I were polar opposites in, in every way. I, you know, I was uh, born and raised in Southeast DC. He was a redhead kid from a small town called Burke Burnett, Texas. And I think when he um, was diagnosed with HIV, it was a very different time in our country and in our culture. Uh, and he uh, got sick, and he had very few friends that were able to take care of him. And one of the things he said uh, near the the very end of his life was, one day this uh, disease, this epidemic is going to look very differently. It's not going to look like me. And what he meant by that was uh, he, as a gay white man, um, was the predominant person uh, uh, living with HIV at the time. And he said, you know, at some point when this changes, you're going to need to do something. And I was like, yeah, like, no, (laughs) like, you know, no, that's not like what I do. And he said, it is what you're going to have to do because it will uh, require people like you to take care of people. And uh, so since then we uh, have had a mission where we've focused then on communities that were in the greatest need, whether those were women, people of color, people in rural communities, people in Appalachia. Uh, and, and, and I think that it's just been my mission. I think a uh, few people know why God put them on the planet, and I am blessed because I do. Mm-hmm. So he told you you had to do something, and you did something. You started the community education group. Tell me more about what the community education group is and what it does. Well, the Community Education Group has, uh, as I articulated a bit earlier, has morphed from originally our name was the National Women in HIV AIDS Project. And that's what we were founded as in 1994. Uh, In 1996, we changed the name to Community Education Group because we believe that we could have a a broader reach and broader impact into uh, multiple communities, not just one or two uh, with a name. So originally we started out doing grassroots work in the areas of public policy and education. Then we moved for several years into doing a great deal of direct service with our CHAMPS program, 
where we recruited, trained, and hired individuals with histories of incarceration, substance use disorder, uh, and were living with HIV and impacted by hepatitis to do community health worker uh, model uh, efforts. So, yeah, so everything from rapid testing for HIV, hepatitis C, linkage to care for substance use disorder or linkage to care for HIV or hep C. So we did that for a number of years in DC. And over the last decade, uh, we've really been doing a lot of work in West Virginia specifically, and more broadly today in the Appalachia region. So what drove the decision to expand into rural communities in Appalachia? I mean, I could, I could tell you a lie, but I think I might as well just tell you the truth. I, I was really thinking that I was going to retire. I had uh, bought a home in West Virginia, and I was thinking I was going to retire. And retirement was sounding like a, a good thing after so long in, in public health. And if folks have worked in HIV, you know, it can, it can be a tough sector. Uh, and I was thinking it was time. And I got a call from a woman who was working at HHS. Uh, that's the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, her name is Karina Dan. And I always use her name because I want to point the finger at the person who did it. Uh, and Karina sent me some information on <clears throat> the uh, exploding rates of hepatitis C in the state of West Virginia. And then she sent me a copy of the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly report, the MMWR, which listed uh, 220 most vulnerable counties in the United States of America. And they were vulnerable for a potential hepatitis C outbreak, but in my mind, likely HIV outbreaks. And the, the 220 counties on that list there were 28 counties uh, that were reflective of West Virginia counties. And now that might not sound like a lot, but when a state only has 55 counties and 28 of them are on that list, you think that there's a, there's a problem. And I asked Karina who was dealing with this, and she said basically no one. And I said, well, what are the resources to deal with this in West Virginia? She said basically none. And I said, well, what's the plan? She said, we don't have one. And she, and I said, well, who do I talk to? She said, I don't know. And I said, well, which, who's going to do something? She said, I guess you. Good luck. And so here we are. <laughs> so you went from being told to do something to being told to do something. Correct. <laughs> right. And, and HIV, viral hepatitis, and substance use disorders are being referred to as some public health experts as a syndemic, which is a term, a term that I had not heard before doing research for this episode. Tell me what a syndemic is. A syndemic is when there are multiple factors, right? So in this case, we're looking at the factors of HIV, uh, hepatitis, uh, substance use disorder, poverty, the number of overdoses, the number, uh, the rate of uh, unemployment. It's a lot like what they did with that MMWR. It's like they said, like, if we, if all of these things kind of come together at the same time, how do we address it? <clears throat> now, historically, we've tried to address things, I think, in in a silo, right? So we'll try to talk to you about your substance use disorder, or we'll try to talk to you about HIV, or we'll try to talk to you about an annual physical, not ever kind of giving you the systematic approach to dealing with all of these things. It's a lot like, you know, for a lot of people think about it in terms of, of harm reduction. 
Historically, people have tried to address one thing, and we're saying you can't do that. In order for these things to really be addressed, the the challenges of HIV or the challenge of substance use disorder or the challenge of hepatitis or the or actually the challenge of poverty, we have to look at all of these things in one collective way. Sure. It doesn't matter if the tire of my car is flat, if the axle is broken. Correct. A hundred percent. You know, and, and I think that so it's not to just think about it in terms of the disease impact uh, or HIV, et cetera, but also to think about it in terms of what I call structural impacts also. And that's the big thing that we're working on now in Appalachia. So, for example, you know, you know better than most the, the number of rural hospitals that have closed over the last decade. But if we put a rural hospital at the end of a road, it doesn't matter if there's no pavement on the road and no one can get to it. It doesn't matter if that hospital is there and no one can afford fuel to get to the hospital or there's no transportation system to the hospital or there's no broadband to the hospital or there's no workers in the hospital. So that's where, you know, kind of structures then start to play a very important role. Do we have enough workforce development programs in place? Do we have enough broadband available? And so it's not, so people want to like often have a conversation about telehealth and I'm like, you have to take a step back. You have to have a conversation about broadband before you have a conversation about telehealth. And I think that, so we have to then look at professional development. Are we getting enough nurses and doctors to our rural communities and to those rural hospitals? Do we have people who have access to those rural hospitals? And, and access isn't just about building the building there. It's about making sure the road is paved, making sure they have fuel, making sure if they don't have fuel, that we've figured out some sort of transportation system, particularly in rural communities, to get folks where they need to be. So I think that it's about a syndemic approach to our response as well as to the disease state. In terms of syndemic, are there special concerns for Appalachia that you may not see in other regions? Man, oh man, Shevitz, I'm glad you said that. Um, you know, I think that the the reality of of Appalachia that we understand is this, and this is a part of the the big project that we are doing now called We Are Appalachia, is that when we began to uh, look at the Appalachia region. And, and a part of the reason we did this is that we received a, a cooperative agreement with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to do COVID vaccination, uh, COVID education, but also to do influenza vaccination and education to some of the most vulnerable populations, those folks impacted by that syndemic we were just talking about, people living with HIV, people living with substance use disorder, people living uh, with uh, behavioral and mental health challenges. Uh, so we, those were the populations that we were uh, going out to, to reach. And we were supposed to, in year one, work specifically in West Virginia. And then year two, uh, we have a planning process for all of Appalachia. And when we began to kind of go into community and have conversation, not just with local partners, but with our federal partners and, and having a uh, conversation with funding partners and that sort of thing, they didn't know what Appalachia was or where it was, really. They thought it was all of the, you know, 13 states were like, no, it's 423 counties. At, at that time, it was like actually 420 counties because uh, they've added three more counties. But we're like, it's no, it's about 400 counties, roughly. It's 13 states. West Virginia is the only state, 100% in Appalachia. And they would beat us down. No. 
So the first thing we realized that we had to do is give people a better understanding of where Appalachia is. And number two, the other thing we had to do is to disabuse notions about what Appalachians are and who we are and what we prioritize. And so having conversations with that there's a cultural dynamic at play here, right? So it's not that folks in that in the region don't want help. It's that we're funny acting. We want help from who we want help from. We want to know the people that give us help. We want to have those people have an understanding of what's important to us, why, why these things are important values to us. You know, I think that as as a person of color who lives in Appalachia and who believes in Appalachia and is really supporting uh, getting us a federal cultural heritage designation, people often ask me, are you serious? Is this what you're going after? And I'm like, 100%. Because one of the things that is important for anyone that's hearing this or wants to know more about the Appalachia region, I can tell you one thing. If you are in this region of the country you know, you may believe that this is a, some just monolithic group of people. It's not. It's a, it's a group of people who are rich and steeped in heritage and in culture. And in a lot of ways, you would want to be here in your worst moment of need because I can tell you my neighbors are, would never let me go hungry. They would never let me go without shelter. And you can't say that about your neighbors in a whole bunch of places but I'm going to tell you, we stick together here. And that's what we're trying to do with this cultural heritage designation. That's what we're trying to do with ensuring that the resources are coming to not just the state of West Virginia, but also throughout the Appalachia region, because there's so much work for us to do. And I'm not sure if I've uh, completely answered your question. It's just something I'm so, I'm so passionate about because I think it's a, it's a part of the country which has been ignored. Uh, many people don't even know that you know places like the Appalachia Regional Commission, which do so much work in economic development, workforce development, and in public health, that they were created by, by the Kennedy administration long, long ago. And they're there because we have to address and figure out strategic ways to address poverty. And we have to do it not just, again, through one through line, but through multiple ones, economic development, workforce development, educational and so there's a lot of things that we that we need to do. And again, I'm just I just don't know that I've answered your question. You've answered a whole bunch of questions and raised more, such as you brought up a cultural designation. What's what would a cultural designation for Appalachia mean? A cultural heritage designation. Uh, you know, I think like a lot of people may think of them, um, think of it like a, a heritage trail. So, for example, the the Appalachian Mountains have a heritage designation. There's uh, heritage designations. Uh, more than 55 of them. But this would be actually the largest heritage designation. And we're specifically asking for it to be a cultural heritage designation because we believe that this region has things that are specific to it, uh, whether it is our commitment to outdoor activities. You know, so folks say, well, you know, I think that, you know, this is not about, I'm like, this is about being able to 
ensure that we can protect our rivers, our streams, our our national parks, uh, our outdoors. But we can also figure out ways that we can monetize those in, in good and sound ways, that we can find new job opportunities by maybe even increasing more tourism through our economic and outdoor activity. We can do that. We can do that collectively. But the other thing that we can do is that we can tie this region together in a way that allows us to move across borders also. As I mentioned earlier, Appalachia is comprised of 423 counties across 13 states. If we can then carve out a region and say Appalachia, maybe what we can then do is get our federal partners to turn on more spigots for that hospital, for those roads. And it doesn't have to stop at a state or a county border because we now have this designation as a region in the country. Uh, People don't see us as a region. They don't see us as a destination. And I think that those things are all important for us to figure out how we address all of the things that we need to address. For example, over the next year and a half, we really hope that we're doing something that might sound simple to a lot of people, but what we want to do is to be able to increase immunizations throughout the Appalachia region. Now I've got to be able to map it, claim it, and then I can do the work that we need to do in the region. But I think that looking at the spigots of public health, workforce development, economic development, and again, ensuring that we have the ability to talk about our region, our culture. Now, many people don't understand why West Virginia is even West Virginia. West Virginia became West Virginia because it did, it did not want to succeed from the union. It said, no, we, what we believe is, is that we believe in freedom. And people don't see it that way today, but that is the root. That is the earth in which this state is born on. And so that's very important work for us to continue throughout this region is to tell the true story of the region, not the story that someone else wants to tell. And you talked about how people don't really understand what Appalachia is. The media likes to stereotype Appalachia as poor, uneducated white people. How would you push back against that generalization? I would say we are poor, and but we're not. We, but poor, poor in what? Right. We what we are not poor in is in understanding. What we're not poor in is compassion. What we're not poor in is our ability to work hard and do what we need to do to take care of our own. That's what we're not poor in. So, you know, if you, you know, if you look at some of the the larger companies, right? So you might think of a like an Amazon or a Google or something like that. And the, the reality is is that they say that the 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 infrastructure, right, isn't here. That in this region, that's why they haven't put their, you know, I guess you know what they call them now Earth 3, Earth 4 for Google and Amazon out here. But we've got a lot of land. But again, I think it's important that we preserve our land. It's important that we have some preservation projects that are going on so that we don't lose uh, what I think is one of our greatest assets, and that's hunting, fishing, the natural environment. We don't want to lose those things, but there are ways in which we can incorporate economic development, new roads, 
Maybe it's not that you want to put your corporate headquarters here, but you can put your box manufacturers for your Amazon boxes, for your Amazon bags, because we come from, a, again, a people with a rich history of doing work in the in mining, in timber, in lumber. So you've got a generation of folk who are folks that are kind of blue collar, hard workers, but, you know, we're earning good wages and could take care of their families on those wages. It might be that next generation, that younger generation that is wants to move into those IT jobs, but that generation that's older, that that's, that's not where they're going to go. They were going to want to go to those more of those labor jobs. So it is also a very diverse region people of color. You've got, you know, LGBT community lives in Appalachia. Appalachia runs from upstate New York to Alabama to Tennessee to Virginia with West Virginia being the only state that's 100% within the Appalachia region. There is so much here and there's so much opportunity here. And that's what people don't know about it because they uh, have listened to, I believe, stories. Like I said, I'm born and raised in D.C., I've lived here. I believe that I am, uh, you know, they say that nobody that isn't born in West Virginia ever is truly a West Virginian. I will fight them to the death to say that that is not true. Uh, I would say I am a West Virginian and we are Appalachian. So with that, and then hand in hand with the comment you made earlier about we want help from who we want it from. Many rural communities have been burned by someone coming in from the outside wanting to fix them. What makes your approach different? Because we aren't coming from the outside. We're here. We, we're, we're embedded here. Uh, we, we are here. We, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, you know, we are, not fr- we are not the others. And I will not allow folks to other us and other our work. Uh, We're very strongly committed to uh, recruitment and retention of staff members that are from the Appalachia region, uh, particularly working on our We Are Appalachia initiative. We're certainly uh, committed to hiring folks in and from West Virginia to work on our projects. Look, we I believe 100% that we can certainly get uh, help from the outside, but I think the folks that that will be listened to, the folks that will be respected, are the folks that are from West Virginia, are from Appalachia, are from County X. And that's why we, we have to do it a little bit at a time and say, you know what? It, it, it's just it's the true it's a truism of truisms. You know, I think that the that, that people who who want to un- not understand the importance of that will miss the mark again and again and again and again and again. How could Appalachians do a better job advocating for ourselves and telling our own stories? Well, that's what we're trying to do with the We Are Appalachia initiative. I mean, we right now we are doing third through seventh generation interviews about and asking exactly that question. Uh, We are putting out uh, a call to hear the stories, to tell the stories so that we can put together a compilation of those stories. That's, and that's, you've hit the nail on the head. It's the, how do you get third to seventh generation Appalachians to tell the story of who we are, what we are, what we need, what we don't need, but more importantly, how do we need it? You know, because you can, you know, you you said it uh, earlier, we could ask for help from the outside and if they bring in the wrong thing or the wrong people, 
it won't get utilized. You know, one of the things that, for example, that people don't know, right, around COVID, and, you know, I think people may have a perception of folks in this region of the country being, quote, unquote, anti-vaxxers, right? It's just not so. West Virginia with Dr. Clay Marsh was one of the first states out of the gate that said, you know what? I don't think a big box strategy, meaning using large pharmacies to do the vaccinations is going to work. For us, it's going to be more the mom and pop stores, the mom and pop pharmacies. And everybody at first said, no, 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 use the big ones, use the big ones. But the truth of the matter is the culture of this region says, I will take it if Joe tells me to take it. I have a relationship with Joe. You don't have the same sort of relationships in most urban kind of pharmacies, but you do here. You know, Joe, you've been probably been going there since you were a kid. So I think that those kind of things were very successful for us during the COVID pandemic of understanding who we were as a culture, understanding who we are as a people and saying, here's what's going to work and here's what's not going to work. Um, you know, and that, and so I think that that's one of the, the, the things that we have to keep doing is figuring out what works for this region, asking the question, what do you need and how do you need it and who do you need it from? Um, you know, and that's what, I mean, one of the things we're also doing is that we're figuring out, okay, can we, take this model I talked about earlier, this champs training model that we use. Can we basically create in West Virginia a group of community health workers, community outreach workers that'll go out, drive out into community? What do you need? Is it, do you have a health need today? Can we get you to where you need to be because there's no transportation? Can we give you a ride? Those are the things that we have to do. It costs more. It takes more time, but that's what it is. It's got to be somebody that Joe knows or Jane knows so that Jane is going to get in the car, so that Jane is going to say, trust the information. It's all about having a, a trusted messengers and having trusted relationships and building those relationships. But most importantly, doing what you say you're going to do, not being fancy about it, but just doing what you say you're going to do. You are also working to establish the Rural Health Service Provider Network. What is the network and why do we need it? Well, the Rural Health Service Provider Network, I'll be very honest, has probably morphed into everything that we're doing in Appalachia. I think that one of the things that we do really well is that we partner with the National Rural Health so Association, the West Virginia Rural Health Association. I mean, we have just finished a big project with the West Virginia Rural Health Association uh, where we're trying to overturn the opioid treatment uh, moratorium. Uh, for those of you that don't know that in West Virginia, there are only nine methadone uh, clinics and, or nine methadone licenses in the state. And that's kind of crazy given the impact that methadone and other opiates have had on, I'm sorry, that opiates have had on uh, the region, that we would only have nine facilities that are able to provide methadone treatment. So we worked with West Virginia Rural Health Association and others to try expand the number of licenses. Not so that there would be, a, you know, a methadone treatment center on every corner, which is what, is what someone suggested, but rather so that all of the MAT providers that already exist in West Virginia, over 100 of them, would be able to have some additional tools in their tool belt. 
methadone service delivery. The other thing is that the FDA has changed the rules so you can do portable and mobile methadone dis- distribution. Why not do it? So I think that, you know, one of the things that we really see now is that what we could do better is to really focus our efforts in on this Appalachia region, given its 423 counties are distinct and unique, given that we believe that we can get a heritage designation, given that we believe that we can also quantify and qualify both the people and the need in that region more specifically. So I think that we've pulled back from saying, let's do all of rural America right now. Let's focus on the Appalachia region. Uh, We're doing a couple of other national rural projects. Uh, We've reached out to some of our federal partners talking about what rural health needs are. Uh, One of the big pushes that we still believe are there is to get the Centers for Disease Control to get an office on rural health, which doesn't exist right now. We think that that is very important for healthcare needs for all of rural America. And uh, yeah, that's what that's what we've done. So the last question, question I ask all my guests, if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and healthcare in rural America? If I could do anything to improve healthcare in rural America, what would I do? I would put me in charge of rural health in America. I'd create a new seat in government and I'd give me a fat budget and <laughs> and that and let's see, I'd give me a fat budget. I could do anything. So I, I get a fat budget. I, I have now have a job that is uh, without uh, favor of the who's in the White House. I'm, I have the job forever, so I have enough time to complete the task that I've set forth. I am going to work in concert first with folks like the Appalachia Regional Commission, the Delta Commission, and, and, and organizations such as the National Rural Health Association, but also the Grassroots Coalition of the National Rural Health Association, because I think that they do different things right? And so I think it's going to be important to have a conversation with folks at the grassroots level, as well as having conversations with, uh, you know, with managed care organizations and federally qualified health centers and others. But I think that the the, the grassroots groups have a different position. And and so that's what I would do. And then I would would come up with a master plan. We would set some very lofty goals, but those goals would be very specific to the, to the regionality of it, right? Because that's one of the things that people don't understand too, is that rule can mean one thing someplace else and one place and, and mean something very different someplace else. Like you don't understand that you could have flat land in many uh, rural communities, but then you've got a place like West Virginia, which is really mountainous. So what does that do to, to fuel costs? What does that do to time and distance? And those are all the kind of things I, I'd want us to like be thinking about when we're going to put out, you know, new plans, new RFPs, uh, that's requests for funding proposals and that sort of thing. Again, that's a part of the reason why we want this cultural heritage designation is that we want to be able to see grants and RFPs that address the Appalachia region, not just two or three counties, but all 423 counties. I love it. I, I will vote for that when it comes to ballot. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me today, Tony. Thank you for having me. And uh, I want to just thank again, the National Rural Health Association, the West Virginia Rural Health Association for all that they've done and all the myriad of ways that they've supported Community Education Group over the years. Thank you. 
That's Tony Young, advocating for solutions that are region-specific. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, make sure you find us on Facebook and Twitter. Visit vrha.org and click the icons on the top right of the page. The Rural Health Voice is a podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.